Hello, and welcome to the Not A Cast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brent Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 77th episode of the Not A Cast entitled The New Boss, an analysis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 1, in which everyone's a gangsta until a gangsta walks into the room. Can I say gangsta? Is that all right for me to say, or do I have to say gangster? I wrote it with the hard R's for a reason, Jeff, but you do you, buddy. You do you. Oh, I, I always do. Me. That's that's kind of the way that I, I roll these things, so to speak. So I, uh, so yeah, this this chapter and Tyrion's chapters in Clash of Kings, we were talking about our pre-production, is uh, they're a whole lot of fun. And, you know, it's one of those things that we have had a lot of fun reading about in A Game of Thrones. I think when we were doing our Patreon-only episode, I'll talk about this a little bit in the, in the regular cast, that they were my favorite chapters from... A Clash of Kings, or from A Game of Thrones, rather, those late Tyrion chapters, 7, 8, and 9, were really spectacular, I thought. And I think like we're just continuing in that good vein here in A Clash of Kings. Oh, yeah. Tyrion really ramps up in Clash. Arya, as we said when we were doing the Arya 1 through 3 episode, gets twice as many chapters. But even more so, you can see George zeroing in on Tyrion's character and what he wants to do with Tyrion. And the first book, as fun as his chapters were... They weren't hugely plot relevant, or they were, but he himself wasn't hugely plot relevant. You know what I mean? He was just yeah. kind of wandering around the edges of things, being like the jester character, poking fun at stuff. Now he's the center, and it's such a different ballgame with Tyrion versus Ned, as we'll get into in the episode proper. Absolutely. It's going to be a lot of fun to like get into Tyrion as the protag for Clash of Kings, just as Ned was for a Game of Thrones. But before we go any further, this episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N. Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves. Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers. Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch. Lord Jean, Master of Coin. Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. Ragged Michael, Ward of the North. Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone. Scarlet the Other Red Woman and, Prince and Mistress of Whisperers. Lord Baby the Onion Baby. Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse. Lord Micah, Warren of the West and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised. The High Bearded Priest. The Blue Ringed Octoling. Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Frank B., Lord James Stormborn, War of the Worldwide Werewood. Again, that is such a mouthful. Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Richard, Sea Lord Bravis, and we have a brand new member of the small council, but they would prefer to remain anonymous, so thank you, Anonymous, for joining up with us. We know who you are, even if the world doesn't, and you have that preference, and that is totally fine with us. What could be more honorable than that? So uh, welcome and thank you so much to the anonymous member of the small council. And thank you, as always, to all our previous members. Absolutely. Our spoiler wing is to talk about in all episodes. We'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Dick novellas, histories, interviews, the Windswinner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lady Hannah B., a Sworn Sword patron, who asks, Hi, guys. New patron here after being super impressed by your work analyzing the climax of A Game of Thrones. I've just completed a reread, well, a re-listen to all five books. There you go, Jeff, someone else who can't read. That's right. And going through each book one after the other made me realize that while there is a consistent tone and shared ideas, certain themes are more prominent in some books than others. For instance, I feel like A Clash of Kings really deals strongly with leadership, and A Feast for Crows engages with religion slash faith more than any other book to date. So my question, what would you say are the most distinct defining themes for each book? Well, thank you, Lady Hannah, for your support, and thank you so much for that question. That's a really great, interesting question, I think. I'll just run through it, I think, real quick before I turn it over to Jeff. A Game of Thrones, as I said, kind of ad nauseum while we were covering it, I think is about 
the fall from grace and losing your innocence. That's what happens to Bran with his fall, happens to Sansa with all her dreams and stories and songs, happens to John at the Wall, it even happens to Ned. I mean, he's older than all those other characters, but he gets disillusioned regarding Robert specifically and the life they live together. Clash of Kings, as Hannah says, is a lot about leadership and focusing on different leadership styles, but I think specifically, as we got into in Sansa 1 and we're going to get into in this chapter, I think Clash of Kings is about how is it that Joffrey, this, this manifestly unfit, spoiled, sadistic child, is king at the beginning of the book and king at the end of the book? How does that happen? How does everyone make these mistakes and errors in judgment to result in that process. I think Storm of Swords, in the wake of like all the problems that come up in the first two books, is about attempts to solve the problem. Hmm. For good or ill. I mean, that's how Tywin frames the Red Wedding, right? That's going to solve the war. Now, he's full of shit, as we've said before, and we'll get into at length in the Storm of Swords. But it's just one of many examples. Danes, Dracarys, Beric knighting a bunch of people and saying all the sides are a problem. We're going to fight all of them at once. Stannis saying, I'm going to burn Edric Storm to save the world, and then I'm going to go north to save the world. All these attempts at cutting through the Gordian knot and solving the problem. A Feast for Crows, as Hannah says, is more focused on religion and faith than many of the other books, but... I think Feast, even though it's less propulsive in terms of momentum than, than the rest of the books and doesn't have a lot of main characters in it, I think it's the most interesting in terms of themes. Hmm. And I would say what it's about is you, you have all these major characters who died in the Storm of Swords, and Feast for Crows opens up like Iron Islands, Balin Greyjoy just died, Dorne, Oberyn Martell just died, King's Landing, Tywin just died. And you have these opportunities in the wake of the deaths of these powerful people to improve and reshape your societies for the better. And all those opportunities get squandered. Like, that's, mm. for me, that's the point of A Feast for Crows. Sometimes, again, for sympathetic reasons. Like, I get why Duran Martell is not moving on from his vengeance, given what happened to his family. Sometimes it's less sympathetic, like when the Ironborn elect Euron. But, like, <laughs> you get to, like, Jamie's last chapter near the very end of the book. And, like, he's tried to set the Riverlands to rights. And it's just blatantly not working, trying as hard as he can. But everyone's still pissed at each other and ready to start fighting as soon as he turns his back. And then the snow starts falling. And it's winter. And he thinks to himself... I wonder how my father's going to feed the country. And then he remembered that his father was dead. And it's like, mm. Mwah, that's, that's perfect. That sums up a feast for crows to me. And then A Dance with Dragons, the objectively best book in the series. Of course. Of course. I think has a lot in common with the universally beloved Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, in that it's, in that it's about failure. It's about like what, what you do when you're trying to fulfill a hero archetype and you fall short for, again, sympathetic reasons or not. Quentin is the obvious case, but also John trying to be Lord Commander and realizing at the end, fuck it, I can't do this. I can't reconcile these identities danny walking away from marine because she's like this is not my home i can't make peace with the peace i've made so to speak you, you have all these different characters who are trying to live up to this role and then by the end of the book you they're all kind of falling short and then the book ends with varus giving this big monologue about how young griff is going to be the one to fulfill that hero archetype and i think the reader having just seen quentin and john and danny is supposed to go i don't think so varus yeah. i don't think it's going to work out quite the way you think so that's that's part of what makes dance really interesting for me. So I've I've ranted enough, sir. What 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 do you think are, are the the big kind of thematic thrusts of of each book in the series? Well, as always, I feel like you like say it before I can even like you know get around to it. I mean, like, I think I try. A, broadly speaking, I think like Game of Thrones is very much focused on the question of leadership. I want to say for like character like Ned Stark, Catelyn Stark, Rob Stark, Joffrey Baratheon. Lannister, you know, all those characters, John as well. Yeah, I, I think like we're also getting a lot of foundation for different characters too for their future leadership arcs, whether it's gonna be Jon Snow or Sansa Stark, Arya Stark in a little bit of a different context. I think for and then that spills into a clash of kings where a lot of those kid characters are still on kind of a leadership 
developmental arc. I think when you look at like Bran's perspective in The Clash of Kings, he's very much in this weird position of being technically in charge of things in the North, mm-hmm. but not really being in charge of things in the North because he's Good got point. Maester mm-hmm. Lewin and Roger Cassell who are actually running things in King's Landing. But then you actually have legitimate leaders too in King's Landing and rather in Westeros, such as Tyrion Lannister, the art character who we are going to be uh, chatting about here in a little bit. And he has a very interesting uh, dynamic in terms of power. And that's going to be one of the things that's going to anchor the end of this episode itself. Not just anchor the end of this episode, but anchor the end of the chapters that Riddle that Varys poses to Tyrion about who lives and who dies when you have the sellsword. Who tells your story? (laughs) No, that's good. That's good. So you're allowed to sing now? Is that what you're saying? So you're allowed to sing now? Is that what we're going with now? Yeah, the rules aren't fair, Jeff. They're just the rules. Got to deal with it. (laughs) It's it's so unfair. God, you're just like the worst dad ever. I think Storm Swords, like broadly speaking, I think we're, we see people coming into um, their power. Jon Snow becomes Lord Commander at the end of the, uh, the end of the book. Robb Stark falls from power. The Lannisters emerge triumphant, but then they also fall very quickly with the death of Tywin Lannister. Sure. I think we see, I, I think, I want to say like Storm of Swords almost, if you want to talk about like the theme of it specifically, I almost would say for the Lannisters, the theme is hubris. Like you yeah. think that you're like in on the top of your game and then when you get all the way to the end of the book, you're actually just sitting, you're actually shitting yourself as you die. Like that's essentially the thematic <laughs> point of, of A Storm of Swords for the Lasters. For the Starks, it's like being reduced to a very low level, but still having hope at the end of the story for Sansa uh, going up to the Vale and having some uh, some semblance of power in the form of Littlefinger and with and you know the death of Lysa Aaron. Arya Stark leaving Westeros as well. Jon Snow again becoming Lord Commander of, of of the Night's Watch. So I think we have a lot of interesting themes in the first three books. I think books four and five are really where George actually sits down and starts to really think about the series. And I want to and I don't think this is all the reason why those books took so long to write, but I do think that part of the reason why they did take a long time was because that George actually not reevaluated the series, but gave it a lot more thought than he was than he was used to, such as, you know, a Feast for Crows is obviously a talking about what the hubris of the Lannisters leads to. It's a Feast for Crows is what victory looks like for for the Lannisters. Dance, I think, does a lot of interior work in terms of the characters, Danny, John, and Tyrion in particular, but also the other characters too. I love your point you're making about young Griff and about the question of who is the hero, right? Is it going to be Quentin Martell? Is it going to be young Griff? Or is it going to be the characters we've established? We've had those kind of leadership development arcs going through the first three books, Danny, John, and uh, well, Tyrion's been in power, but Danny and John, particularly in Sansa and Arya too. So I think those are some of the three. So those are the major themes that I see in the, in the books as well. I think that they... They don't. I think that George has talked about how he likes to have multiple themes going on in the story at the same time. I think he said that actually recently at Worldcon. So having that idea in mind, it's hard to like pick just one for each of the books. But I think it's a good, uh, it's it's you know it's a good exercise to kind of think about it about the books and whether the what's the message of each individual book. But at the same time, I do think there are multiple things going into the story at the same time. Well said, sir. Yeah, it's it's not so much that we're we're tunneling down to the one theme that defines each book, but thinking about which theme defines each book gets you closer to what that is about and gets you thinking about how it's distinct from the other books. And I think I think for me, what really brought me to A Feast for Crows, which, as I said, is, is a pretty slow book and lacking a lot of the main characters, is zeroing in on what, what it was about and what it was trying to say. And I, I found that to be more interesting than, than some of the stuff in the first three. So uh, thank you so much to Hannah for the question. If you want to ask us a question, you can go ahead over to patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Anyone who uh, contributes $10 or more a month gets to ask us questions to be done at the beginning of each episode. Uh, speaking of our, our Patreon, 
Since we uh, hit our uh, $5,000 a month stretch goal, we're going to be doing episodes on Fever Dream, George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel. Our kind of uh, intro episode on that, which is just one of our patron monthly episodes, but we're just laying down kind of the foundation for where we're going to go with the Fever Dream episodes proper. But before all $5 and above patrons by the time this episode begins to air, though. So if you're one of our patrons, enjoy that. That'll just a, a little taste of where we're, where we're going to go with Fever Dream. Yeah, so Fever Dream is a really fun book. If you guys have never read it before, I highly recommend you guys do read it. Uh, as a little plug for Fever Dream and George R. Barton, I'm, I'm expecting royalties for me saying this. If you purchase the audiobook through Audible or one other uh, or whatever service you use, the, narr- the, the narrator for the book is uh, Ron Donaghy, who is Sir Roderick Cassell from Game of Thrones, and he is also the father of Daniel Portman, who is Sir Roderick Payne in the books as well. And he does a fantastic job of narrating the books. So go ahead and check that out. Use your Audible credit for this month to look at Fever Dream because it's awesome our first episode is pretty short but i think it's about 40 minutes so to speak but it's mostly just introducing the book and also having you guys it, it lightly spoilers so as to prevent like major spoilers for you guys who are reading it for the first time to kind of get you know uh not too spoiled about uh, too spoiled about it but it's gonna it's a lot of fun it's a really great book and we really are excited to get in to be diving into it that was part of our previous stretch goal and we've announced our, our new patreon stretch goal it's going to, this one is about not how many uh, dollars we're pulling a month, but the number of patrons. Once we hit a thousand patrons, we're going to do an episode all about my very favorite chapter in the Song of Ice and Fire, even though it technically hasn't been released yet. And that is The Forsaken, Aaron Dampere's first chapter from The Winds of Winter, a, a mind-blowing slab of cosmic horror that lays <laughs> out really, it kind of lays out what Euron Greyjoy is up to, but also introduces a bunch more mysteries. So once, once we hit a thousand patrons, we're going to do a big old episode around that. I might even let Jeff talk in it if he's good. I can talk in this episode. Uh, this past weekend, I actually got to hang out. Not this past weekend, the past week, I got to hang out with uh, Emmett in in New York City as he is right now. And we were sitting at a bar, at a bar, having a drink. And one of the things that says, I, I, Emmett, I've got this great idea for the bad, stupid, ugly theory for when we get, if and when we get to that that Patreon level of, of a thousand <laughs> pages a month. And so I, I'm not going to spoil it here, but it is something that I previously believed in. That's going to be our bad, stupid, ugly theory. That's the only time I'm going to be able to talk in that episode. I think. If you want to jump in and say you were wrong, I will not stop you. <laughs> I got to get it now because uh, I've, been, I've become, as I've been saying, I'm becoming more and more convinced by your Barristan theory. So I got to, I got to like, like hedge my bets in terms of being nice to you when you're wrong about things because I get, I'm getting the feeling I'm going to be wrong about that one. Well, that'll be an episode in itself. It, it, it shall be. Yeah, we did get a suggestion for a Patreon episode, which I think we will pursue someday down the road. But I will not talk about it right here because I like to keep those things surprises down the road. So here is the synopsis. For a Clash of Kings, Tyrion won. Bouncer Sir Mandon Moore, described as, quote, a corpse in a shroud, stands in front of Tyrion like an off-duty cop outside of a Baltimore bar saying, I can't go in, which is fucking bullshit because my name is totally John Doe, born June 9th, 1969. <laughs> Tyrion protests that he's got a letter from Tywin, the fucking hand of the king, but, but Mandon Moore repeats slowly to Tyrion as if he's an idiot that Cersei doesn't want to be disturbed. Jamie had once told Tyrion that Moore was the most dangerous of the king's guard excepting himself always, because his face gave no hint as to what he might do next. Tyrion, though, wants to know what Moore is thinking now, and sure, he could have Mandon Moore killed, but he'd rather not. It's his first day on the job. I think Mandon Moore has a different take vis-a-vis Tyrion on this, though, as we'll discuss later in A Clash of Kings. Still, if he does nothing, Tyrion will be shown up as a hollow suit. So he decides on a threat. He asks Mandon if he knew Servars Egan, which he did. Well, this guy, he points to Bronn, he fucking killed him. Mandamore makes no response for a while, and then he stands aside. But only Tyrion can enter. A small victory, Tyrion thought, but sweet. Tyrion thinks he's passed his first test as he enters the chambers, and inside are five members of the small council. They all stop talking when Tyrion walks in. 
You, his sister said in a tone that was equal parts disbelief and distaste. I can see where Joffrey learned his courtesies. Cersei asks Tyrion why he's here, and mailman Tyrion says he's only here to deliver a letter from Tywin. Only that. Varys takes the letter and declares it genuine, leading to Cersei snapping the letter from Varys' hand. She reads, and Tyrion notices that she's sitting in the king's seat. Tyrion judges that Joffrey did not attend council business, much like his, um, father. So Tyrion takes the hand seat. This is absurd, the queen said at last. My lord father has sent my brother to sit in his place in the council. He bids us accept Tyrion's hand of the king until such a time as he himself can join us. Pycel, a moron, says they should welcome Tyrion. Janus Lint, another moron, agrees. Besides, it's a damn dirty town and they need Tyrion to help clean the city up. So she says, yeah, wonder why that is. Aren't you the fucking cops or something, Janus? As for Tyrion, he should be out on the battlefield doing worship. Oh, no, Tyrion's done with battles. <laughs> okay, Tyrion. But, you know, all the worship was charming compared to the Vale of Arryn. Littlefinger laughed. Well said, Lannister, a man after my own heart. Tyrion smiled at him, remembering a certain dagger with a dragonbone hilt and a Valyrian steel blade. We must have a talk about that. And soon. He wondered if Lord Peter would find that subject amusing as well. Tyrion then asked to be put to work and that he'll be a good servant. Cersei asked Tyrion whether he brought any of them sword fighting bros with him. And yes, Tyrion did. A few hundred anyways. Well, that's going to do fuck all once Renly or Stannis come to the city. And according to Cersei, it's goddamn rude for Tywin to send you in his place without Joffrey's consent. Well, take that up with him, Cersei, Tyrion sir replies. He's at Harrenhal, with an army. But regardless, Tyrion wants a private word with his sister. So each of the counselors gets to their feet. Vara is doing that weird obsequious shit he loves to do. Janus, who, by the way, Jon Snow will be headed to Dance with Dragons, also leaves. Pycelle gets up, ponderously. Littlefinger strides over and wonders whether Tyrion wants Chambers and Makers Holdfast. Oh, no, no, no. Tyrion wants the Tower of the Hand. You're a braver man than me, Lannister. You do know the fate of our last two hands. And, and just pause here. Like, what the fuck, little figure? I mean, everyone seems to think Cersei had Jon Arryn killed, when in fact, it was you, you who killed Jon Arryn along with Lysarin. So what are you doing, you moron? Regardless, Tyrion says it's not two hands, it's the last four hands of the king. Sure, Ned Stark and Jon Arryn, but also the pyromancer hand died during the sack quite mysteriously, and who could have possibly killed him? Then there was the other one that Eris burned, and two more before them that died in exile and will have no further impact on the story. Fascinating, said Littlefinger, and all the more reason I'd sooner bed down in the dungeons. Perhaps you'll get that wish, Tyrion thought, but he said, Courage and folly are, coin are cousins, or so I've heard. Whatever curse may linger over the Tower of the Hand, I pray I'm small enough to escape its notice. Janos laughs, Creeperfinger smiles, and Pycelle bows. Alone now with Cersei, the two siblings, or cousins, it's still up for debate, it's still up for debate, Emmett, it's still up for debate, who get along so, so well, begin immediately bickering. Cersei is annoyed by Tyrion's history lesson. Tyrion tries joking around. Cersei is then annoyed by her father's letter, again, asking why Tywin wanted to inflict Tyrion on her. He should have come himself. Cersei had commanded it through Joffrey. And he ignored you, Tyrion pointed out. He has quite a large army. He can do that. Nor is he the first, is he? Cersei threatens to call the letter of forgery and toss Tyrion to a dungeon, and Tyrion realizes that he's in a bit of a precarious position. He says that no one would care if he got tossed to the dungeon, especially Tywin, but really, Cersei, why would you want to do that? Tyrion is only here to help. Well, Cersei doesn't need his help. She required Tywin, but she wants Jaime, Tyrion points out. His sister fancied herself subtle, but he had grown up around her. He could read her face like one of his favorite books, and what he read now was rage and fear and despair. Tyrion says he'll free Jaime, and Cersei asks how, so Tyrion says he'll trade the Stark girls for him. Girl, Cersei corrects. They only have Sansa. The other one got away when Sirio, a hero, got in, got in Marin Trant's way. Cersei thinks that she's dead, which, so sad to say, Cersei, you're so fucking wrong. Tyrion was hoping for both, for both Stark girls, but one would do. Tell me about our friends on the council. 
Cersei looks at the door and asks, what about them? So Tyrion recounts how Tywin doesn't like them and wants their heads if they're disloyal. Cersei asks what Tywin knows, and Tyrion states that Tywin knows nothing. He suspects, rather. And why does Tywin suspect? Good question. He knows that your son's reign has been a long parade of follies and disasters. That suggests that someone is giving Joffrey some very bad counsel. Hmm. I wonder who this individual could possibly be. <clears throat> Little figure. But according to Cersei, no one is giving him bad counsel. Joffrey has only received the best counsel. He's just so goddamn hard-headed. Uh-huh, sure. So Tyrion asks what the fuck happened with Ned Stark, and Cersei go does her grimacing act, recounting how everything had been worked out, but then suddenly... Suddenly, Joffrey decided to give the crowd a show, and my god, the projection is so strong here, and I never saw it before reading this chapter again. All the same, the High Septon thinks that they profanes the Sept of Baylor, which, yeah, y'all have done fucked up that one. Can't imagine that one having anyone co any consequences down the road come a feast for crows. Then Tyrion asks after Heron Hall and why Janus Slint, some goddamn commoner, was given the castle, and Cersei reports that Littlefinger made the arrangements. And did you know that Ned Stark had tried to name Stannis as rightful heir to, St as rightful heir to Robert? The nerve! Thankfully, Sansa had told Cersei of the timing of Ned's plans. This kind of surprises Tyrion, but Cersei, ever the lady, says that Sansa was, quote, wet with love. Lovely. She would have done anything for that little shit. Okay, all well and good. Well, not really, but let's move on for now. What about Ser Barristan? How could Cersei have let that happen? Well, that bit of work came via Varys as Joffrey wanted someone to blame, and Varys suggested Sir Grandfather. It worked out well. Jaime is now Elsie of the Kingsguard. So too, Sandra Clegane is now a part of the Kingsguard. Besides, they had even offered Barristan some lands, and he rejected it. The nerve of him. Sir Barristan was the Lord Commander of Robert Baratheon's Kingsguard, Tyrion reminded Cersei pointedly. He and Jaime are the only survivors of Aerys Targaryen Seven. The small folk talk of him in the same way they talk of Sir in the Mirror Shield and Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight. What do you imagine they'll think when they see Barristan the Bold riding beside Rob Stark? Or Stannis, Stannis, Stannis Baratheon? I can't do the Stannis, Stannis thing. Ah, uh, well, Cersei hadn't thought of that. Tyrion states that Tywin thought of that, and that's why Tyrion is here, to bring Joffrey to heel. Good fucking luck at that, Cersei sort of says. But Tyrion says he has the power to actually threaten Joffrey with harm. Cersei's eyes narrowed. If you believe I would ever let you harm my son, you're sick with fever. Tyrion sighs and thinks that Cersei is missing the point as she always does. He tells her that Joffrey needs to feel insecure, but he'll be so safe with Tyrion. Besides, Joffrey needs Tyrion in order to stay seated on the Iron Throne. Tyrion reaches out and touches Cersei's hand, odd, because then Cersei is shocked that Tyrion would touch her and tells Tyrion that she'll only let Tyrion stay on as hand if he's her hand, and that he has some and that he has some plans to share with and that if he has some plans, he has to share them with Cersei at all times. Tyrion understands, but more than understand, Cersei asks if Tyrion agrees. Certainly he lied. I am yours, sister, for as long as I need to be. Now that the two siblings are getting along quite famously, Tyrion declares that they should have no more secrets. So, who murdered John Arryn? He, Cersei yanks her hand back and declares that she doesn't know. Tyrion reports that Lysa thought Tyrion murdered John Arryn, and he's deadly curious where she came by that notion. Cersei's all like, yeah, I'm a fucking villain, but I got standards. She never killed John Arryn, despite Ned Stark's suspicions that, that you were fucking our sweet Jamie. She slapped him. Did you really think I was as blind as father? Tyrion rubbed his cheek. Who you lie with is no matter to me, although it doesn't seem just that you should open your legs for one brother and not the other. She slapped him. Be gentle, Cersei. I'm only jesting with you. If truth be told, I'd sooner have a nice horror. I never understood what Jamie saw in you apart from his own reflection. She slapped him. His cheeks were red and burning, yet he smiled. If you keep doing that, I may get angry. 
Uh, sorry, I just had to read all that because imagine I'm just imagining the Gleeman Martin size when he was writing that. My God, it's really good. Cersei stops hitting then and asks why she should care if Tyrion gets angry. Uh, well, as to that, Tyrion's got a ton of new friends. And Cersei, well, you ain't going to like that, sis. Anyways, how did you kill Robert? Well, as to that, Robert kind of did that himself. They only help by having Lancel keep fetching Robert's strong wine while he went off to hunt the boar. Cersei reports that they cooked the boar afterwards and it was delish. Truly, sister, you were born to be a widow. Sure, Tyrion had liked Robert Baratheon, but that may have only been because Cersei hated him or that Robert loved to drink. One of the two. Regardless, Tyrion's off to go do, um, stuff. What stuff in particular? Free Jamie, maybe? Well, yeah, sure, at some point, but he needs to figure out how to do that first. First thing, though, he's going to take measure of the city. Also, Cersei, please do not harm Sansa Stark. Whatever you do, look at me, Cersei. Eyes on. Cersei, eye contact. Don't harm Sansa. Outside the small council chambers, Tyrion meets up with Bronn, who tells Tyrion that Timot has gone on to explore the city. Tyrion sighs and says that he sure hopes Timot doesn't murder anyone important in the city. <laughs> it's really good. But Bronn, you should probably go and find Timot and get the rest of the Mountain Clansmen into some sort of barracks or buildings or something before they kill the shit out of each other and other characters in King's Landing. As for Tyrion, he's on to ride to the Broken Anvil, and no Bronn, he doesn't want you for an escort. He'll take the captain of Cersei's household guards. It's a power play, you see. An hour later, Tyrion rides from the Red Keep with Captain Vilar and a half dozen Lannister Red Cloaks, who I'm assuming had nothing, nothing to do with murdering Ned Stark's men in the throne room. <clears throat> Underneath the portcullis, Tyrion notices the heads mounted on spikes high above the walls, and he tells Vilar to get those heads off the walls and give them over to the Sound Sisters. You see, some proper niceties of war have to be observed. When Vilar protests that Joffrey has ordered the heads to stay up on the walls and that the three empty spikes are for Renly, Robb Stark, and Stannis, Tyrion says, dude, he's 13. Get those fucking heads down or your head will mount one of the spikes reserved for Renly, Robb, or Stannis. Tyrion's purpose in riding around the city is to kind of take measure of it. It's only half a lie, really. He's got something else in mind, though. But he does take stock in what he sees, and it ain't good. The streets of King's Landing had always been teeming and raucous and noisy, but now they reeked of danger in a way that he did not recall from past visits. A naked corpse sprawled in the gutter near the street of looms, being torn at by a pack of feral dogs. Yet no one seemed to care. Watchmen were much in evidence, moving in pairs through the alleys in their gold cloaks and shirts of black ringmail, iron cudgels never far from their hands. And now the price of goods was high. The only good food, and food being one of the prices that's especially high, and the only good food seems to be rats. When Tyrion asks about food, Vila reports that the Tyrells aren't shipping food in from the Reach. When Tyrion then asks what Cersei's been doing about it, Vilar states that the City Watch has been tripled, stonemasons are at work strengthening the walls, and carpers are making scorpions and catapults. And meanwhile, some weirdo alchemist guild was making pots of wildfire. This gives Tyrion a little bit of a pause. Sure, he's sort of pleased that Cersei hasn't been completely idiotic and negligent, but wildfire could turn King's Landing into a fiery maelstrom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how has Cersei found the money for this? Well, Lord Littlefinger has been helping so very helpfully. In fact, Littlefinger has imposed a tax on people coming in from the King's Road. Yes, that would work, Tyrion said, thinking. Clever. Clever and cruel. Tens of thousands were running to King's Landing, and they would give over every penny for their safety for their safety behind the walls. But they might have second thoughts if they knew of all the wildfire being stored in the city. Tyrion then comes up to the end of the Broken Anvil and dismisses Vilar and his men, stating that he's spending that in the inn. When Vilar warns Tyrion that it won't be safe, Tyrion happily replies that he's left his own mountain clansman here. He'll be fine, though entirely, though not entirely safe given his guests. Pushing his way through a myriad of Dungeons & Dragons roleplayers inside the inn, he hears Shay before he sees her. He moves in the direction of her voice and sees what he thinks is an innkeeper talking with her. But as Tyrion approaches, Shay calls out Tyrion's name, and the man turns, and it's Quaith! Wait, shit, not Quaith. It's, uh, it, it's Varys! Varys! Tyrion stumbled. Lord Varys, I had not thought to see you here. The others take him. How did he find them so quickly? 
Varez does his fake apologetic, oh, sorry to bother you a bit, but he was just so, so taken with when he meet this young lady that was accompanying Tyrion. Shay says that Varys is half right, she's young, but she ain't no lady. Tyrion thinks thinks about Shay and how she's all his and how possessive he feels about her, which, um, Tyrion, not good, bro. All the same, Tyrion apologizes insincerely to Varys for intruding on him, which leads to Shay talking about how Varys complimented Chella on the ear she'd taken. But no, no, she'd, taken, she'd not taken it off corpses. That's dishonorable. Braver to leave the man alive with a chance to cleanse his shame by winning back his ear, explained Chella. They joke around for a bit, and then Varys asks if Tyrion wants to take some wine. Of course he does, alcoholic that he is, but he also knows what's up. Varys was delivering a message. When he said, I was taken by a sudden urge to meet your young lady, what he meant was, you tried to hide her, but I knew where she was and who was she, and who she was. And here I am. Tyrion wonders who betrayed him, and Varys seems to answer by telling Shay about how he loves to come through the gate of the gods, because the eyes carved on the gates are so expressive, following people around. Tyrion realizes that Varys is bragging about his own eyes, and that's how he knew when Tyrion came in and who he came into the city with. And who he came into the city with. Varys warns Shay to be safe, given the amount of lawless armed men about, and how he even feared to come at the inn, and Tyrion interprets this for Varys in the rears, thank you, Tyrion, by thinking about that Varys was bragging about being able to move about unarmed and unspotted. Shay says that Chella will take an ear if anyone tries to come for Shay, and Varys laughs so, so loudly, but the laughter is in his eyes when he turns to Tyrion. Your young lady has an amiable way about her. I should take very good care of her if I was you. Tyrion does intend to take good care of Shay. Any man who tries to harm her, well, I'm too small to be a black ear, I make no claims to courage. See, I speak the same tongue as you do, eunuch. Hurt her, and I'll have your head. Varys then says he needs to go get going to do, um... Stuff. Everybody's always doing stuff in King's Landing, but he's happy Tyrion is here. And oh, by the way, seeing that red comment that every point of view character in the story we're, t- we're both in is talking about? Why, yes. Yes, Tyrion has. They say it comes as a herald before a king to warn of fire and blood to follow. The Uick rubbed his powdered hands together. May I leave you with a bit of a riddle, Lord Tyrion? He did not wait for an answer. In a room sit three great men, a king, a priest, and a rich man with his gold. Between them stands his sellsword, a little man of common birth, and no great mind. Each of the great ones bids him to slay the other two. Do it, says the king, for I am your lawful ruler. Do it, says the priest, for I command you in the names of the gods. Do it, says the rich man, and all this gold shall be yours. So tell me, who lives and who dies? Far as bows and leaves, Chella says, well, the rich man lives, of course, but Tyrion is a bit more reflective. Yeah, maybe that guy lives, but who really knows? It really depends on the sellsword. He tells Shay they need to mount the stairs on their way up to the Tyrion's high tower. Get it? Because Tyrion is a secret high tower. Why are you giving me that look at me? Stop giving me that look. Anyways, Shay teases Tyrion, saying that he'll miss her when he's up in the tower of the hand. And Tyrion admits that, yeah, he will. But he doesn't want to get Shay. But he doesn't want Shay to get her ass captured by one of Tywin's goons. His quote-unquote father has promised to murder the next sex worker Tyrion encountered. So Tyrion was willing to be defiant, but only to a point. Then Tyrion and Shay go play hide the cannoli, which is a euphemism for you know what? Just go ask your parents. My lion, Shay whispered when he broke off the kiss to undress. My sweet lord, my giant of Lannister. After they're done doing mommy-daddy wrestling, Tyrion thinks about Shay, realizing how fucking stupid he is for falling for her. Will you never learn, dwarf? She's a whore, damn you. It's your coin she loves, not your cock. Remember, Tysha? But then he looks at her body, touches it, and God, Tyrion, you're so fucking stupid. Shay stirs and looks at him, asking what he's going to do now that he's handed the king. Something that Cersei will never expect, Tyrion murmured softly against her slender neck. I'll do justice. And that is A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 1. You know, when we did our Patreon end of Game of Thrones episodes, I said that my favorite 
chapters in doing the Not A Cast podcast review of a Game of Thrones was those later Tyrion chapters, seven to nine in particular. And you really see why here in Clash as the tone, I feel like really spills over from a Game of Thrones. And like our latter Tyrion chapters from game, the relationships are really complex. You know, Tyrion's relationship to Shay, Cersei, Varys, Joffrey, Sansa, Sandra Clegane even, they're really complex. And there's the politics, the balancing act Tyrion attempts and fails in part, but we'll get to that eventually, between his lust for power and wanting to do good by the people. But there's also like something else that kind of makes me gravitate to Tyrion's chapters in Clash. I mean, they're, they're, they're so much fun, right? And given how much fun Martin is having in writing Tyrion in Clash, does George see Tyrion as the protagonist? Emmett, and more importantly, Emmett, do you see Tyrion as a protagonist for A Clash of Kings? Hell yeah. I think Tyrion is inarguably the protagonist of A Clash of Kings, just like Ned was the protagonist of A Game of Thrones. And that's so not just because he has the most chapters in the book, although he does, nor because he's taking over his Hand of the King from Ned. It's because this is a book in large part about the decision-making process behind power, the thoughts behind the public face. And nowhere in A Song of Ice and Fire do we focus more on thoughts and decisions and power than in Tyrion's A Clash of Kings chapters. Which sounds like it might be kind of dry. Like, you know, this is high fantasy, not Robert Caro. But nothing could be further from the truth. As you say, it's just fun. It's just so exciting to sit back and watch Tyrion think. And as I've been saying on Twitter, beyond medieval fantasy and historical fiction, I look at this storyline through the lens of organized crime. Think of him as like, you know, the beginning of Goodfellas. Like it's zooming in on him, freeze frame. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be Hand of the King. <laughs> but, 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 uh, but, but, you know I'd go from rags to riches. See, I'm just going to keep singing, Jeff, just to rub yeah, it in your face. You should. You really should. It's, it's really good to keep rubbing that in my face because I, I I'm really want to break out in song, but I can't, apparently. I've been prevented, banned from singing. Uh, but, but I think, like, you know, you're right. I think, like, Tyrion does kind of resemble that Michael Corleone figure. But I also think, like, part of Tyrion's appeal in A Clash of Kings is how out of sorts he is in the narrative. Like, you know, having those modernistic sentiments. He's a skeptic. He's a religious skeptic, rather. He loves the science. He's into the reason. He has a physical disability, which makes us sympathetic to him. You know, that works to contrast him to those he interacts with in A Clash of Kings. I mean, a lot of the people that he interacts with, besides Sansa Stark are real pieces of shit in, the, in this book. And yeah, he's got some good, genuine views at some level, but ultimately he's got the same weakness that's being held by his less sympathetic uh, counterparts in his family, Tywin and Cersei, and to a lesser extent, Jaime, and they end up being his downfall. He lusts for power, and by the end of Storm, he's calling himself Tywin Writ Small. Now, and this is important. What's also fascinating about Tyrion is how the narrative drives him to that point of his downfall. While that darkness has been present in Tyrion's sense of Game of Thrones, you know, remember when he wanted to reduce the veil to a smoking wasteland, you know, the steady declination of Tyrion's to darkness is kind of sympathetic, right? In that, no small part because it's driven by his reaction to external forces. King's Landing rejects him because of his physical deformity, and this leads him to rejecting the city ultimately. Joffrey hates Tyrion, and Tyrion smacks Joffrey around twice in the books, and then he false and then falsely he tells Jamie that he murdered Joffrey at the end. Shay quote unquote betrays Tyrion, but only because he's endangered her by bringing her to the city itself, and then Tyrion murders her in a sickening act of intimate partner violence. These kind of like stimuli and responses of Tyrion's are the building blocks for Tyrion's overall arc, and they're driving him forward inevitably to the He's the villain, of course, as Martin once said in a 1999 Amazon.com interview. But that's all kind of like overarching meta and meta narrative stuff. Before we get there, it's important, though, to set Tyrion in the political as as a, as the Clash of Kings political archetype against his A Game of Thrones political archetype and counterpart. Yes, indeed. Before we dig into the chapter itself, I think we should start by comparing and contrasting Tyrion's arc in the Clash of Kings 
to Ned's arc in A Game of Thrones. And George clearly means for us to do so, right? They're both hands of the king. They have the most POV chapters in their respective books. They even have the same number of chapters. They each get 15 in those two books. There are even parallels just between given chapters as you go along. Like, Eddard 1 was, you know, Ned reuniting with his foster brother Robert and being named Han. Tyrion 1, he reunites with his sister and he's accepted as Han. Eddard 4 was Ned meeting the small council. Tyrion 4 is the 1-2-3 gambit where he manipulates the small council. Eddard 9, you have the battle in the streets of King's Landing. Tyrion 9, you have the riot in the streets of King's Landing. Eddard 12 is his big showdown with Cersei and the Godwood. Tyrion 12 is his showdown with Cersei regarding Tommen and Aliyaya. Eddard 14, he's betrayed and brought down in the throne room. Tyrion 14, he's betrayed and brought down on the battlefield. And then their final chapters, Eddard 15 is him fever dreaming in the Black Cells. Tyrion 15 is him fever dreaming in this, like, horrible field hospital or wherever he gets dumped and later found after the battle. Yet while the structure is practically identical, the tone and the focus are very different. As I said in A Game of Thrones, the politics of Ned's chapters, like the investigation and such, didn't really interest me as much as the personal emotional elements regarding Lyanna and Robert and so on. In part, that's because while we here at the Nauticast defend Ned's decision-making for the most part, he was not an especially complex politician. Mm. Tyrion is, and the sheer density and speed of his political mind is what makes these chapters so damn delightful to read. If the first book, as I was saying earlier, was all about the fall from grace, then it makes perfect sense that as book two opens, we've gone from the idealistic Ned to the cynical Tyrion. And that's not to say that Tyrion lacks all conscience, as we'll get into as we go along in this book, but that his conscience is filtered through what happened to Ned. He has that line in the show, I don't mean to follow Ned Stark to the grave. And I think that perfectly sets up the dynamic between this storyline and Ned's storyline. I think I absolutely agree. And so much of what Tyrion is doing in Clash is rooted through that cynical, pragmatic worldview as you talked about. So, so I'm, I'm curious, right? So we were doing Ned Stark's chapters for the Not A Cast podcast back in, you know, uh, the year of our Lord, 2018, 2019. Something that you were, you were saying back then was that you found Ned Stark's personal side much more compelling than the political side for Ned Stark. So do you find the, the kind of reverse for Clash of Kings for Tyrion where the personal side, stuff with Shay and some of the Black Ears and other folks who are in the Mount Klansmen is less compelling than the stuff that we we're finding in the politics for Tyrion? Exactly. You said it perfectly. It's an inversion. With Ned, it was like the investigation, okay, but I know already about Jamie and Cersei sleeping together, yada, yada. But so it's like the flashback to Lyanna, his conversations with Robert. That's where the heart of that is for me. For With Tyrion's chapters in Clash, I, I kind of get a little weary with the Shay scenes because they're kind of repetitive, as we'll get into towards the end of this episode. But it's, it's, it's the politics. It's Tyrion on the job is what really interests me in this book, whereas Ned on the job was, for me, the, the comparatively less interesting part of A Game of Thrones. And you can see the, the construction of Tyrion's chapters are all built around establishing him as a politician and how he works as one. And the, this chapter is especially is like this, this series of tests that he has to pass, these obstacles he has to overcome to establish himself in King's Landing, because there's a lot of obstacles that could prevent him from doing so. So the first test... Right away as this chapter opens is Mandon Moore, the, the Kingsguard in front of the council room. He has to literally get his foot in the door just to, just to begin his reign as hand. So even before we get to Varus's riddle, this chapter is all about what it means to have power. Specifically how you act on potential power to make it actual. Like Tyrion is nominally the hand of the hmm. king, but like Ned before him, he's relying on a piece of paper from someone who isn't present. A dead Robert versus, in this case, an absent Tywin. And before he can even step foot in the council chamber to present said paper, he is to get past Mandon Moore, who could not possibly give less of a fuck. <laughs> like if Eris Okart's place in Sansa 1 was all about how mediocre people fit into bad systems, 
Sir Mandon is all about how hollow people fit into bad systems. He has no discernible personality whatsoever and is just an instrument of his boss's will. He's a white, basically. Like, that's mm-hmm. why he's described as a corpse in a shroud. He's a zombie. So Tyrion has to establish himself as his boss, a boss on the level of Cersei and Joffrey. And he does that not purely with an appeal to his father's seal, nor purely through his clever tongue, nor purely through a show of force. It's a combo of all of the above. As he says, Bronn and Timot could likely kill the knight if it came to swords, but it would scarcely bode well if he began by slaying one of Joffrey's protectors. Yet if he let the man turn him away, where is his authority? So you see Tyrion accessing those multiple planes of power and seeing which one is appropriate in the moment. And I think that's that's really interesting. It's not just we go from idealistic honor-bound Ned to like the, the more brutish, cynical Tyrion who just like kills everyone in his path. It's, it's that Tyrion is trying to work on more levels than Ned was able to. Does that make sense? It does. I think you, Tyrion is working on a lot of different levels, and I think like these obstacles that he faces are part of the levels that he's working at. You know, Amanda Moore is an interesting character, not that interesting, but interesting in terms of like presenting like the, the first challenge, right? If you want to, this is a video game. He is the mini boss that Tyrion has to meet in this chapter before he meets the the, the big boss. Then, who of course is Varys, who's the much more powerful character. Most powerful I love that. Characters yeah, that's so perfect. Far. Uh, but I also think it's interesting, too, that Amanda Moore, when when Tyrion asks after him in A Storm of Swords, and I think maybe at the end of Clash of Kings, sorry, A Storm of Swords, like, Varys has got, like, nothing on him. He's like, yeah, he was in the Vale, and he's maybe got family somewhere, but he came with Jon Arryn, and that's um that that's it. That's all we know about this guy. Like, he has nothing going for him. But at the same time, even though he's got, like, no real personality, it's interesting the threat he decides to utilize against Amanda Moore to get him into, get inside the doors, the foot in the doors, he put it so well. Yeah, because... Tyrion is using pinpoint precision, kind of the cynical, pragmatic way to insert himself into the small council chambers because he uses Bronn and Tibbet, son of Tibbet, as the way that he's going to get inside the council chambers. As a veilman, Mandamore would be aware of the, quote, savagery and violence that the mountain clansmen are known for in the mountain passes and how they've threatened the veil time and time again. And Timot, son of Timot, as a burned man, is the fiercest warrior among the fiercest warrior clans in all of the Vale. So that's a real threat for a guy like Man and Morris as a knight. But then he also introduces Bronn as well and introduces him as the guy who killed Sir Vardis Egan. And this is really effective, too, because, you know, Vardis Egan... In the story, I mean, he's he's obviously a very good knight, and he had a whole lot of disadvantages going into that duel he had with Bronn back in A Game of Thrones. But now he's dead, and the reason why he's dead is that this guy standing in front of Mandon Moore is the one who killed him. And, you know, Tyrion asks pointedly whether, did you know, did you know Sir Varys Egan? And he's like, yes, I know the man. And he's, and Bronn's like, knew him, which, of course, implies that he's dead, so to speak. So you have to think that Mandon Moore's perspective would be like, oh, this guy killed the best knight in service to John Aaron. And he's got Timot, son of Timot, standing here. Do I, do I really want to go many mantle with the guy who killed Sarvaris Egan and with Timot, son of Timot? Probably not. So I think it's an effective threat that Tyrion utilizes here. It's also speaking a bit to Tyrion's pragmatic side. I can't imagine a scenario where, where Ned would use Jory Cassell to push his way violently into the threat of, like, I will deploy Jory Cassell to, like, get into this brothel, so to speak. He always uses the soft power. He uses a lot more soft power than the threat of hard power. Yeah, that's a great point. It's, it would never even occur to Ned to use his men this way, in part because he's just not as ruthless, but also because he cares more about his men as individuals than Tyrion does. Look at Ned's reaction to when Jory dies, whereas if Tyrion saw Bronn die, he'd probably care somewhat, but he wouldn't be as devastated as Ned is. Nah. Yeah, I love that little line from Bronn when he just says new, because unlike the show, I think Bronn's best moments are when he's being very minimalist and just like mm-hmm. says just just the fewest amount of words possible to get his point across. And I love that. But yeah, it's Tyrion with this multi-track, well-honed political mind. As he said to John in the first book, you know, you'd 
mine needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. Or maybe that's what he says in season one. Regardless, that's the <laughs> idea he gets across to John. You see it at work here. Of course, you also see his biggest vulnerability, his self-consciousness about his stature, which convinces him, as with Taisha, that he cannot truly be loved. As he says, I would only be a small disturbance, sir. It's like that that's his <laughs> preemptive strike, right? That's him... As he said the John, kind of making fun of himself before anyone else can. But it, as we've said before, that doesn't actually really work in terms of armoring Tyrion. He's more vulnerable than ever. As he says, he, he had passed his first test. Tyrion Lannister shouldered his way through the door, feeling almost tall. Which is a great proud moment for him, but it also just emphasizes most of the time he doesn't feel that way, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, he's, he, he's very much at a physical disability from... Most of Westeros as well, as we talked to cover unpacked it significantly in Tyrion's Game of Thrones chapters. Part of that physical disability allows for most of the society to dismiss him, which, interestingly, inversely, uh, provides him with opportunities in the Clash of Kings because people underestimate him due to his physical disability because he has other assets, mainly his his brain, his mind, his ability to reason his way and work out different problems. Not all problems, as we're going to talk about with, with Littlefinger here momentarily, but most of the problems that he encounters, he's able to like figure his way out of them, and that's really important. But that does really, uh, that, that first test does set him up for that second test, which is when Tyrion enters through the door of the small council chambers and on in to meeting the five counselors who are sitting before him, and they all love him, right? They love Tyrion. Everyone loves Tyrion. Oh, uh, the small council. Remember these knuckleheads? <laughs> Last time we saw them, they were just sitting around utterly failing to prevent the execution of Ned Stark, except, of course, for Littlefinger, who arranged it. And now here they are trying to pick up the pieces. And as Janos Lint acknowledges, they are in desperate need of some help. We have sore need of you, my lord. Rebellion everywhere. This grim omen in the sky. Rioting in the city streets. Of course, the fact that Slint admits that reveals what a shoddy politician he is, as well as being just terrible at his job of keeping the peace at King's Landing. Like, it's one thing to be a bad commander of the Gold Cloaks, but you're not supposed to admit that to the guy who just showed up to take charge. Like, you just, he's handing Tyrion his head on a platter at that point. Right. It's its its hilarious the way that Janus Lynn is just so bad at politics. But I mean, he has, he has disadvantages too being raised as a commoner, so he just didn't have, like, the, the upbringing. That That's means, fair. That being said, though, I mean, he's super shit at his job. I mean, and, and that's just an enduring feature of who Janice Lynn is going all the way back to when he's first introduced in Eddard's sixth chapter in the Game of Thrones, you know, where he arrives at the small council complaining about crime in the city. And Lord Bren Renly Baratheon, his probably his most sympathetic moment in the story, he says, if you cannot keep the king's peace, Janice, perhaps the city watch should be commanded by someone who can. Stout, jowly Janice Lynn puffed himself up like an angry frog, <laughs> his bald plate reddening. Aegon the dragon himself could not keep the peace, Lord Renly. I need more men. And there, Janos couldn't keep the peace for the king, for the hands turning because he didn't have enough men. But now with refugees pouring in, it's kind of a similar issue in King's Land where you have a lot of people coming to the city at the same time. But that speaks more to his incompetence because as Tyrion makes his rounds later in the chapter, uh, Captain Vilar reveals that the city guard has been tripled in terms of size. So is the issue really that King's Landing is just like just so ridden with crime and that Janos needs more men? Or is there, you know, almost as if the problem isn't that there's too few cops in the city? Almost maybe there's a there's another issue at work in the fact that crime is kind of out of control in King's Landing. It's almost like there's systemic corruption being underwritten by violence and you can't solve that by just throwing money at it. Hmm. <laughs> is that your point, Jeff? <laughs> nah, it can't possibly be it. Immediately they're exposing their weaknesses and Tyrion zeroes in on it. He describes Slint as, as a smug frog who had gotten rather above himself, immediately setting up what he's going to do to, to Janos. He also takes note of how ponderous and pretentious Pycelle is stroking his beard, and of course we know how that's going to turn out. And that's not just because Tyrion is perceptive or because he just doesn't like these people, because this is the job he was sent to do. 
He was sent here to deal with this motley crew, and while, again, Ned was more perceptive than his rep suggests, he has that line about the flatterers and the fools and that he thinks he already knows which are which, Tyrion is prepared to weaponize his insights far more effectively. He puts them into practice better than Ned does. He knows not to trust Littlefinger, even if, as it turns out, he feels like he can't afford to get rid of him. Littlefinger, meanwhile, as you said, mentions the fate of those last two hands, Ned and Jon Arryn, which he himself arranged. Which is, you know, a nice little a subtle unspoken threat, although he's also making an enemy out of Tyrion when he doesn't have to, which is a pretty consistent weakness of Littlefinger's. Varys, meanwhile, is just like oozing about unctuously in this scene because he's waiting to make his own claim on Tyrion's attentions in private because he generally is more restrained and smarter than Littlefinger on the whole. Wild <laughs> opinion, I know. But I think equally important as who is here is who isn't here. And that's what Tyrion mm. zeroes in on. The person missing very palpably from this room is Barristan Selmay. And again, the difference between Ned and Tyrion, like Ned respected Barristan's honor, but he didn't seem to understand how to politically make use of it or its political significance. He just liked Barristan as a man. He didn't seem aware of this, this PR relationship, the way Barristan, as Tywin says, lent honor to whomever he served. Tyrion understands that perfectly well, that losing Barristan to another king is a huge political blow. And Cersei admits, oh, hmm, I never thought of that. And Tyrion's like, yeah, that's why I'm here. Because you didn't think of that. That's, and that, that's how he starts making the case that Cersei needs him. Yeah, precisely. I mean, Barristan represents so many things that are lacking in this small council, right? I mean, there's the, the part of the thing that, that the Lannisters, they, they, they have a decent grasp on kind of the hard, crude politics of power politics. If I kill you... That means that you're not a threat to me anymore. But what they don't have a grasp of is on the soft power politics and on the the ideals and the optics that go into like making an actual good case for your for your party and for your cause. So having Sir Barristan on the small council should be what should have happened because what he represents gives the Lannisters legitimacy that goes beyond simply their name and the fact that they have someone sitting on the Iron Throne. Because ultimately it's not just the Iron Throne that's important. You have to have other symbols of power too. You know, you have to have the faith. You have to have the. You have to have some sort of shining example of the knights. And sorry to say for you, Jamie Stans, and I can count myself as sort of one of them. Jamie's just not going to count there. I mean, he's known as the Kingslayer by the common folk and by the small, by the by the peasants in in Westeros, and he's not really going to cut the cut cut of despite the fact that Cersei thinks like they've, she's done this amazing thing. She's dismissed Sir Barristan, and now Jamie's here because that's like everybody loves Jamie, right? Everybody loves does everybody love Jamie. Even if they did, he's not here. He's not here to walk around being the great, glorious, golden example of the night. He's he's rotting in a dungeon at River Run and will for the entire book until Catelyn lets him go. There's no one to fill that that void, and so you have Tyrion and Cersei, kind of the relative outsiders of the Lannister clan, scrapping over how to fill that hole. And I I really love the Tyrion Cersei dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite relationships in the series. I honestly think it's more interesting than the Jaime Cersei dynamic because I had forgotten until we reread a Game of Thrones what what an ice queen Cersei really is in book one. We don't see the fiery attitude we associate with her character because our primary POVs on her in that book are the Starks, her enemies, and in front of whom she's fronting constantly. But boy, does she drop that pretense quickly (laughs) when her eternally obnoxious little brother walks in the room. She rants and he snarks. She slaps him physically. He slaps back verbally. It's similar to the Tyrion-Tywin dynamic we were talking about in book one in terms of in terms of the years of poison always working their way to the surface between these two and preventing any genuine cooperation. But the power dynamic is totally different and very fluid at this specific moment. We're in sibling territory now, and so the stakes and tone are very different than a parent-child relationship. To be clear, like Tyrion and Cersei obviously can't stand each other. (laughs) 
And indeed, as of Feast and Dance, they want they both want the other dead more than anything in the world. But, I mean, that's actually kind of a parallel, right? That really kind of makes them more similar than they would care to admit. And they're just so familiar with each other that they're they're never really in a hurry to end their conversations. Like, the Tyrion-Cersei scenes just go on and on and on. And I mean that as a compliment. It's It's good. It's a realistic way of capturing people who can't stand each other but also can't quit each other. You know, it's like slipping into an old, comfortable armchair whenever they fight. They're so used to it. They're not exactly enjoying it, but they just understand this dynamic so well. Like, Tyrion knows, right, that he's not the Lannister man Cersei was hoping would walk through that door. He was at the bottom of that list for her. So what he does is he leverages the other two, the men she does want in the room. Dad sent me, and I'm going to save Jamie. He knows that's hmm. how he can get Cersei. Cersei, meanwhile, is looking at him the same way Catelyn was looking at Jon when Rob decided to name him heir, this, this traitorous termite who's going to climb the ladder of chaos and ruin everything for our family. Both of them are claiming to be the center of Lannister power in the capital, and so you get this constant question in the Clash of Kings, is this town big enough for the two of them? <laughs> and, like, Tyrion doesn't need Cersei to help him run things day to day. She's not going to be very good at it. But what he does need for her right now is to just not lock him up as soon as he walks through the door. And, of course, she also has useful information regarding what the hell happened at the end of A Game of Thrones. I mean, the reader knows about that, but Tyrion doesn't. He has to find out what went down. So once again, it's not that Ned's naivete is being replaced by pure power politics. It's that Tyrion understands you have to make use of every tool in your toolbox. That you have to apply pressure on this pedal and then on that one as you need in the moment. Like the paper shield he has, it matters. Not because it's equivalent to force, but because it gets the, his foot in the door so he can then work on acquiring that force. It's a step-by-step process. He has to agree to be Cersei's hand, lying through his teeth as he says that. <laughs> until he can acquire a monopoly on violence in the capital, which is what he works on over his next few chapters so he can operate independently of her. And even beyond the politics, though, in terms of their character relationships, like, there's there's a real sadness, I think, at the core of this dysfunctional dynamic between Cersei and Tyrion, because they, they could have been great, powerful allies against the patriarchy, mm-hmm. right, if they could ever get their shit together. Tyrion takes endless shit for his stature, Cersei takes endless shit for her gender, Like, you could easily imagine them seeing that in common and, like, growing up as a mutually supportive team. But instead, as so often happens with people who are marginalized in different ways, they turn on each other, wrestling for scraps of dad's approval and society's approval. I mean, of course, we later learn about how Cersei treated Tyrion as a child, like, grabbing his penis and twisting it. And I don't think he's fully joking about wanting to have sex with her. So I don't put all of this on Tywin. There's there's more than enough dysfunction to go around in House Lannister. Oh, yeah. I, I think you bring up a, a number of wonderful points. And I think something that, that we're seeing in Clash and Tyrion's point of view is how he's still utilizing the same tactics that he used to get in the door, so to speak, to like save his head, uh, namely in the form of like Bronn. You remember how Bronn is introduced by taking Tyrion's side at the at the uh, at, at this the at the combat that they have up in the up in the area itself. And the reason why he does this is because of the promise of gold, the fact that he is Tywin Lannister's son, and that continues to buy Tyrion loyalty of the clansmen who end up accompanying him down to King's Landing as well. So he is Tyrion is still relying on his father for the power that he has right now. At the same time, Cersei's dynamic is also interesting too, in that she is relying on going back to daddy like why isn't my dad coming to help me and save me like i t- i told him he she needed to come like this is really this is this is intolerable the way that this has all worked itself out so i think we're seeing like a real interesting dynamic too you know if we, when we talk back to like the to Tyrion nine from game of thrones we talked about how all of the westerman lords are all just 
politically inert because they've all relied on Tywin Lannister for the entirety of their political regime and for to make all the decisions. And I think we're also seeing the dynamic here too, where you have you know Cersei and and, and Tyrion who are now having to operate independently of Tywin while still having him in their back pocket or still having them in the position where they want him to be. Namely, Tyrion wants you know the position and the power that Tywin has. Cersei wants Tywin to come with his army to defend King's Landing too. Now, the other thing you also want to point out too is you brought up about how Tyrion is joking, so totally joking about wanting to uh, uh, have sex with with Cersei, right? Really, totally joking. He's he's not joking, guys. I mean, I think something something that, that Tyrion uses humor for a lot of the times is like he uses it as as a kind of way to obscure like the reality by like it's just a joke, guys. But you know, when we get to a dance with dragons, and after Tyrion has had this, you know, great unraveling of his personality. You know, he's he's the widow of the waterfront asked why he would want to support Daenerys Targaryen. And, you know, he says, oh, you know, Danny can have whatever she wants to be. Sage counsel, savage wit, a bit of tumbling, my cock if she desires it, my tongue if she does not. I will lead her armies or rub her feet if she desires. And the only reward I ask is that I might be allowed to rape and kill my sister. So when we look back at this chapter now in the context of that of Danny Seven from uh, rather from Tyrion Seven from a, from a Dance with Dragons, you really do get the sense that this is actually is underlining a lot of what Tyrion is going for. That he does have a jealousy of Jamie, the fact that Jamie has had a sexual relationship with his sister, and that he kind of wants one too. And that's really bad. I mean, it's really bad that this this family is is so toxic and corrupted that they're all fucking each other, right? I think it's, that's bad, right? Can I can I make that moral statement? Is that okay to make that that type of moral statement? They're just recreating the worst aspects of the Targaryens, and you have you know Tyrion and Cersei. In, in, in the middle of this Lannister power spectrum, right? And at one end of it, you have Tywin, who wants to build his glorious Lannister legacy and wants to drag everyone along with him to do it. At the other end, you have Joffrey, who really unravels that project as much as he possibly can. Joffrey doesn't appear in this chapter, unlike Sansa 1, but his presence looms large nonetheless. When uh, the uh, Boiled Leather Audio Hour was did some episodes on each book individually... They argue that uh, Tyrion and the Clash of Kings doesn't have like a clear through line the way Ned does with his investigation in the Game of Thrones, but I, I somewhat disagree with that. I think you, you do see a through line, and it's this. He, meaning Tywin, knows that your son's short reign has been a long parade of follies and disasters. That suggests that someone is giving Joffrey some very bad counsel. That is why he sent me, to put an end to these follies and bring your son to heel. So that's what, that's what Tyrion's working on. That's the overall goal for him in this book. And while he plays that game quite effectively regarding the small council, and even Cersei for the most part, Joffrey is really his Achilles heel. Like, mm -hmm. Tyrion can fire Jano Slint. He can throw Pycelle in jail. He can offer Marcella to the Martells without consulting Cersei once he gets enough power on his own to pull it off. But no matter what he does, he, he can't remove Joffrey from power. And that's a problem not only because Joffrey is a sadistic little shit who instigates riots and has valuable prisoners beaten, but because he hates Tyrion's guts. And that just is inherently going to have an impact on how good a job Tyrion can do. Unlike Cersei, Joffrey cannot be persuaded that he needs Tyrion's help to stay in charge. So as Tyrion acknowledges by the time he gets to the Purple Wedding, the ground will never be secure under Tyrion's feet as long as Joffrey is king. He will never be safe. Bronn, of all people, kind of anticipates the Tyrells move when he notes that Tommen would be far easier to control. But Tyrion can't let himself go there. Not yet. He will be by a dance with dragons, as you say. He will get to that place where he's actively, viciously turning on his family. But right now, he's in this kind of liminal state where he can see so clearly that Joffrey is the worst. He's more enraged by it than Cersei or the Council or the Kingsguard. But even as he acts on that disgust sometimes, slapping him and threatening him and saving Sansa, at the end of the day, every move Tyrion makes in this book is to ensure that Joffrey's butt stays on the Iron Throne. 
So as with Littlefinger kind of poking at Tyrion unnecessarily, every time Tyrion antagonizes Joffrey, as much as we might cheer him on, all he's really doing is letting a powerful person know that he's their enemy without reducing their power. And so long before Mandon Moore tries to kill Tyrion at the Blackwater, I think we can already glimpse the source of his downfall here. And that's his relationship to Joffrey. Well, one of the things I find so interesting about Tyrion in, in Clash is that he doesn't really have a, an ideology that he's espousing besides mm. save his family. But at the same time, like Tyrion is, is very, very conscious of who Joffrey is, right? He's known who Joffrey is since his first chapter in the Game of Thrones, the chapter where Joffrey is there like, oh, I don't, the wailing of women and all that sort of stuff. And Tyrion mm-hmm. slaps him around, which of course sets the relationship on a, on a bad moment before we even like get to Clash of Kings where they have to interact on a day-to-day basis or as little as often as, as Tyrion would prefer. I, I think it, the other thing that's interesting about Tyrion's relationship too is as you're progressing through Clash of Kings, Tyrion often takes this perspective of, well, yeah, I'm serving Joffrey, but he really doesn't want to know about that because he would just like turn that to shit, like thinking about the wildfire, thinking about the chain, like the different things that Tyrion integrates into the into the story. And I think it's really interesting because at some at some subconscious level, jo- Tyrion has to realize that Joffrey is bad at his job, like that he should not be the king, that Bronn is right, that Tommen should be king, or, you know, that Stannis should be the king, right? A- anyone should be the king besides this guy who's sitting on the king right on, on the throne right now. And I, I think it's this part of the poisonous toxic family dynamic that we see at work here and that the Lancers and that they have to like support each other to bring the one person onto the onto the Iron Throne and keep them keep their ass seated on the throne itself. But they're not supporting the best person for the throne. And then they're all backstabbing each other at the end anyways, to include everyone thinking that Tyrion murdered the person that he's ostensibly backing that he sacrifices a lot for in A Clash of Kings. And I think that dynamic is interesting and also toxic and also I, I would like to have seen probably a little more exploration of Tyrion's subconscious and how his feelings about Joffrey evolve in the series. I think we don't really get his perspective on Tommen on the Iron Throne until A Dance of Dragons, until he's clear and far away in Pentos. And I think we would be, um, and I think it'd be interesting to see what that, how that dynamic changes when we get into the Windswear and hopefully we have some more Tyrion and Westeros dynamics going on. It's not only that Tyrion recognizes that Joffrey is horrible, it's that there's no plan to make Joffrey better. Right. Like, what, what are we What are we going to do when this guy turns 16 and there's really no way we can hold him back anymore? And there's no plan. Tyrion doesn't have a plan for that. Cersei doesn't have a plan for that. Tywin alludes to having a plan for that, but he doesn't carry it out unless you think he was in on Joffrey's death, which I, I don't think he was. So it's, it's just this gaping hole in the middle of the Lannister plan and, and none of them can do anything about it. And that that gets at just the the contradictions at the heart of power and that it's, it's not as simple as just taking what you want because the, the Cersei did take what she wanted and now the way she did it and who she did it for is making it fall apart in her hands. And that's that's what, you know, makes Varus's riddle really the, the, the core of this chapter. So Tyrion goes, goes through the city streets, he gets to the inn where he meets Shea and then Varus is suddenly there and it is in a much more kind of knowing, powerful way than what he was in the in the council chamber. And uh, the riddle gets spread over two chapters, unlike in the show. <laughs> We we only get the question, the riddle itself in this chapter, and Varus's answer comes in Tyrion too, so we'll talk about that then. For this chapter's purposes, though, I think there are two important points to make about Varus's riddle. One is that George is setting up A Clash of Kings as being a book not only about power, but about competing conceptions of where power comes from and what power even is. I mean, the Game of Thrones touched on that, but by design it couldn't dig deep because it was about the scales falling from one's eyes, as I said. It was... It was about power coming from the outside more than the inside. 
So I think we're supposed to ponder Varus's riddle throughout this whole book, not just in Tyrion's chapters. What he's talking about applies to Stannis and Renly. It applies to Arya and Jock and Hagar. It applies to Danny and her dragons. And you see all these different answers to the riddle, so to speak. We, we do see, like, idealized, romantic versions of where the power comes from. Like with the, with the Reed's oath to Bran when they show up at Winterfell. It's like, we offer you hearth and harvest if you protect us. And Bran says, be welcome. You know, it's, it's that, the, the good feudal relationship working like it's supposed to. We see more cynical takes, like also in Bran's story, the, the Lord of the Crossing game that the, the young Walders Frey bring to Winterfell, which kind of reduces power politics down to its most brutal core. And you see takes in between, like with uh, Sandor talking to Sansa about how power works, or Jaime talking to Catelyn about how power works, and you can see the ideals they used to believe in and how they've fallen from them. All these, these different conceptions of what is this thing power that everyone's fighting over. And the, the other important point, I think, to make about the riddle here is that it's interesting that Varys is even bothering to do this. Like, he's, mm. that he's reaching out to Tyrion individually and posing him this philosophical question. Like, he never got this philosophical with Ned no. until the very end in the Black Cells when it kind of didn't really matter anymore. Varys thought he could make use of Ned in terms of keeping Robert alive until his Targaryen restoration was ready to go. But on the whole, Varys, like Cersei, saw the Starks as unexpected interlopers, upsetting all his carefully laid plans. He wasn't trying to integrate them. Varys seems to be trying to integrate Tyrion into his plan. He regards Tyrion right from the start as both a worthy opponent and a potentially valuable asset. I mean, admittedly, he does turn the information he starts acquiring <laughs> here against Tyrion at his trial, but I don't see any indication that betrayal was his plan all along. Like, I think you got to consider what Varys' priorities are at this moment in time. Having failed to keep Robert alive, which I believe him when he says that was his goal in book one, his new priority is preventing the Baratheons from reuniting Westeros and thus being able to stand firm against his perfect prince. So in terms of who the Lannisters come up with to lead that agenda, you know, he might have been expecting Tywin to show up or Kevon or Adam Marbrand. But Tyrion is a lion of a different color, and I don't think Varys knows him particularly well up to this point. So Varys needs to get a sense of who he's going to be dealing with. And, and the very fact that he concludes this conversation between them by trying to get Tyrion to think critically about power suggests to me that this is another test Tyrion has passed and that indeed going forward Varys will be working closely with him and for all that Tyrion bitterly curses and threatens Varys in the privacy of his own mind here he does come to trust and work with Varys I would say more than he does with Pycelle or Littlefinger and I don't you know it's maybe for the most part just an alliance of convenience but I think there is there's something deeper than that or Varys wouldn't reveal his backstory to Tyrion, of all people, the way he does later in the book. I think at some level they they make a connection that was not there with Ned and Varys. Do you think that's fair to say? Yeah. I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of the best way to respond to that. Because I think, like, I I look at Varys this way. So Varys in a Game of Thrones, I think, was attempting to set Ned up as his man, right? So in, in Tyrion's second chapter in a, in a Clash of Kings, we have the famous firing of Janos Lynn, which is just great. It's, it's fantastic where he's, he's kicked out of, out of the small council and kicked out of King's Landing. But Tyrion thinks about it after he names, God, I'm going to fuck his name up again um, because we were talking about this in pre-production. Uh, Jocelyn the, Bywater. Jocelyn Bywater. There you go. Thank you. Where he thinks that, where, where he's, replaces Janice Lynn with Jason by Bywars as the commander of the city watch. And he thinks for a moment that he has, have I replaced one of Littlefinger's men with one of Varys's men? And that's interesting because I wonder if the dynamic here is a little bit broader for, for Varys, whether he is attempting to secure people in advance of young Griff coming to Westeros. And maybe he's identified Tyrion as being that outsider person that he could then supplant in 
to claim the Lannister mantle because he has the Lannister last name. He is the son of son of Tywin Lannister, and that could be the way that he works. I mean, there's that great theory that we'll talk about later in A Clash of Kings about whether Tyrek, whether Tyrek Lannister was uh, secured and stolen by Varys in order that he could have like a you know Lord Paramount of the Westerlands in place when young Griff arrives, and then he can just have kind of a government in a box, so to speak. So realm in a box. So as soon as young Griff arrives, oh, I've got you know I've got. Not Gendry. I've got Edric Storm for the Lord of the Stormlands. I've got Tyrek Lannister to be the Lord of the Westerlands. I can like I've got a the government ready to go so the continuity of the government can continue and you know it's not gonna be this big upheaval of the way that Robert's Rebellion and some of the other rebellions, especially Aegon's Conquest, were in the especially the Blackfire and Dance of the Dragons rebellions. So I, I do think that that's what potentially is going on at work here, and I do think that's why Varus is placing a lot more interest in Tyrion Lannister. I think that he also, Tyrion also represents a near peer in terms of the intellectual abilities, the way that, you know, not that Ned was dumb because we would, because we're in the, in the pro Ned side here. Ned is not dumb. Ned is very smart, but uh, not the, not the same level as Vara's little finger or, or Tyrion for sure. Not the same tone, not the same kind of delight in intellectual sparring and conversation. I think Varus, yeah, just enjoys talking to Tyrion, which uh, I think Varus doesn't necessarily experience that very much. And I think he likes it. But so then Varus leaves and Tyrion is left alone with Shay. And yeah, so this is the closest we get to a, a personal, emotional element in Tyrion's Clash of Kings chapters to match those in Ned's. And while it's not nearly as moving for me, I don't think it's necessarily meant to be. I think George uses the Tyrion-Shay relationship effectively to expose the massive blind spots in Tyrion's worldview and how they, they turn dark and violent over time. Like, the, the question becomes not so much, oh, aren't we invested in this relationship? It becomes about... What will Tyrion do in order to hold on to Shay? I would say you could right. go ask Simon Silvertongue, but mm, you can't. Unless, unless you go down to Flea Bottom and start talking to the Bulls of Bran, you can't. And that, that I think, is, is the way the relationship gets used effectively. I, th- I think these scenes with Shay are kind of repetitive. Like, you can't really remember which happens in what scene, as opposed to, like, John and Egret, which has a real arc, and I can remember exactly what order things occur in, because it's built up perfectly. Tyrion and Shay, not so much, but I, th- I think... Obviously, she has to be there in terms of tying everything in with Taisha and Tywin and so forth. But I also think their relationship works well in establishing, as you say, Tyrion's darker side underneath the surface of A Clash of Kings. Right. I, I think that you make a great point that Egret and John's relationship is really strong. And you can remember like key points in the relationship. Like Tyrion and Shay, I'm like, wait, when does is, when is Shay show up again in the books from a, in a Clash of Kings? And I'm like flipping through the, the Tyrion Clash chapters. And I'm like, I, I really should know this, but I don't. And it's because the relationship isn't isn't super. It's it's like you were saying at the very beginning about how the politics of Tyrion's story is much more compelling than the personal for Tyrion's story. Shay is not an, as interesting of a character so much to the extent that you know, George R. R. Martin went after Sibyl Kelly was cast as Shay said that oh this is a better Shay than was in my books. So you're like okay <laughs> okay but but regardless we we are kind of in the, in the form of Shay we are getting a further sense of Tyrion's toxicity in terms of his feelings of ownership over Shay because he he's making it pretty clear that he feels like he owns her he has like a hold of her in ways that are really unhealthy and it should be painfully clear at this point that Shay is viewing this relationship really really differently you know Tyrion sees Shay and he's projecting Tysha all over as we talked about in Tyrion 7 the, the analysis there but here you know he's she's very obviously seeing him as a John and Tyrion like he knows this at, at a conscious level at a re- rationalistic reasonable level Fool, he thought to himself afterwards, he lay in the center of the sagging mattress amidst the, the rumpled sheets. Will you never learn, dwarf? She's a whore, damn you. It's your coin she loves, not your cock. Remember, Taisha? 
but Tyrion, he can't help but falling for Shay as he once did for Tysha. Yet when his fingers trailed lightly over one nipple, it stiffened at the touch, and he could see the mark on her breast where he'd bitten her in his passion. You know, that that's a signal, I think, to readers on Martin's part, that despite Tyrion's penchant for reason, he isn't an emotional void, right? I think he's he's not some sort of Borg figure going up up there emotionless. The, the problem, though, is that Tyrion is choosing to fix his emotions on someone who he consciously knows doesn't love him back, but he still wants her to love him back. He still wants her to be his girlfriend. And it all really goes back to the backstory and to, and to Taisha, the girl he fell for when he was a teenager. And Jamie's quote revealed that she was only a sex worker who didn't love him for anything more than his money. And that's it, it becomes ever more toxic when Tyrion learns the truth at the end of A Storm of Swords from Jamie. And as we'll find out in Tyrion's final Storm of Swords chapter, who other than his own father, Tywin shares that trait with Tyrion Lannister of being the guy who seems like this uh, super reason, reasonable, realistic dude who is never like taking emotions into account. Well, and then he finds, and then Tyrion finds his his former lover, his former mistress, and poor Mache and Tywin's bed at the end of the story. So they both share that trait. Really, really great. Really great. Really bad. Not not great. Not big. Terrible. Very, very bad. It is. It's a perfect nightmare scenario there, and it's 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 built up to very effectively. It's kind of pressure point where House Lannister falls apart. You can see it as George setting up both Tyrion's strengths and weaknesses, right? In this chapter, you can see him setting up why he's going to rise so high and also why he's going to fall so low. And I can't think of a, a better use of a character's first chapter in a book than that. So mm-hmm. I think that about covers our analysis of, of the episode proper. Moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork for Clash of Kings, Tyrion 1. Obviously, right from the get-go, in the chilly white raiment of the Kingsguard, Sir Mandon Mora looked like a corpse in a shroud. And yeah, I'll bet he does, given that he'll try to make a corpse out of Tyrion at the Blackwater before ending one up one himself. And that cloak indeed serves as his shroud as he sinks into the river. And I love that George set this, sets this up from the very first line of Tyrion's very first chapter in the book. There it is, right there, how it's going to end. Also, yeah, as you said, Jamie's line about Mandon Moore, that he was the most dangerous of the Kingsguard because his face gave no hint as to what he might do next. And that almost gets Tyrion killed. It does, and it almost gets him killed at the Battle of the Blackwater because Tyrion's all like, oh, I'm, I'm done with battles. You know, not only is he going to fight at the Blackwater, the climax of a Clash of Kings, but he's also there at the Battle of Fire at the start of the Winds of Winter. He's one of our primary point of views besides Barristan and Victarion. He's our, one of our three point of views that's going to be witnessing events from the Battle of Fire. So that's all interesting. I, I also think, too, like, George has often said that he is the character that most resembles Tyrion in terms of personality. So when we're talking about, like, George, like, <laughs> kind of projecting himself into Tyrion, like, he's he's making kind of a little bit of a meta-commentary by having, you know, Tyrion be the, the guy saying, like, yeah, well, you know, I didn't really, like, battle all that much. I didn't think it was all that great. Didn't really have a good time. So I'm happy to be out of battle. I'll never see battle again. But, of course, he, he will see battle again. Another kind of interesting bit of expositional info dump here when we, Tyrion and Littlefinger are sparring. Uh, Tyrion gives this little speech. Aerys Targaryen's last hand was killed during the sack of King's Landing. Though I doubt he'd had time to settle into the tower, he was only hand for a fortnight. The one before him was burned to death, and before them came two others who died landless and penniless in exile and counted themselves lucky. And all all of those characters actually end up being important or at least mentioned to varying degrees going forward. So this qualifies as our first mentions of Rossart the Pyromancer, who was the one who was killed during the sack by Jaime, as it turns out. Uh, Carlton Chelsted is the one who was burned to death, and we find out from Jamie that that was because he defied Eris's plan regarding the wildfire. The uh, Among the first ones who died landless and penniless in exile was Orton Merryweather's grandsire, but Orton Merryweather himself uh, shows up again on Cersei's small council in A Feast for Crows. And most importantly of all, the other one who supposedly died landless and penniless in exile, but it turns out didn't, 
is John Connington, who, of course, will be very significant as, as we get into the later books in the series. So, I, you know, again, as we always say with these bits, who knows how much of this George had in mind at this point. But those those qualifiers are mentioned of those of those first four characters. So bag them and tag them, folks. Rack them up. The, the mentions are coming hard and fast now. Right. And it's, it's interesting. This is around the time that George likely started to think more deeply about the possibility of having an exiled Targaryen, fake Targaryen in the form of Vagon coming into the narrative. Uh, we do see our, our first canonical reference to the Mummer's Dragon in Danny's House of the Undying chapters. So does this at this point work as foreshadowing for the entry of John Connington and the Merryweathers, and the Merryweathers into the story? It's hard to say with certainty, but I do think that Maybe growing from the gardening that we see in a lot of what George is writing and that he ends up using these kind of like, oh, this exiled character who was away and died penniless. Well, we can bring him back, right? And we can also bring potentially Aegon the Sixth Targaryen back too. So we also have Tyrion's short tour through King's Landing and he observes that the city's on the brink of starvation with the Tyrells not shipping in any food and they're only bringing in food we've later learned on from uh, House Rosby and Stokeworth. And that really nicely sets up the quote unquote food riot, a quote unquote organic uprising, which it's not an organic uprising, guys. We'll talk about that later in the class. At least it's not entirely an organic uprising. I can see your face, Evan. I can see what you're thinking. That It's like, both. You have it's, to- it's both. It's Varus, I think, taking advantage of a spark that's already there and fanning it to serve his own purposes but that'll that'll wait for our big theory discussion when we get to a Tyrion 9 that's a that's a hell of a chapter in a lot of ways so Mm -hmm. that's gonna be fun one little detail I'd forgotten about until this reread is that Varys mentions the eyes on the gates of King's Landing referring of course metaphorically to his spies but that's an image that comes up at Karth when Danny goes through the threefold gates of Karth one of them is covered with I think golden eyes which I think is interesting connection one way I think you can think about Karth is it's like an entire city of Varys's where like everyone kind of behaves like him, which is both interesting and not because if everyone's Varus, then it's it's less compelling than when you have this one guy who's different from everyone moving around. Finally, we have here for foreshadowing before we get into our ground before we get into our major theory discussion is we have the first canonical reference to Wildfire. We did look this up beforehand. Maybe we're wrong about this, but we think it's the first time that Wildfire is mentioned in A Song of Ice and Fire, where you have the reference that Cersei is creating pots of wildfire to defend King's Landing itself. So maybe that'll be important for later in the books. I don't know. Maybe it'll also be important for when Daenerys comes to King's Landing with fire and dragons, who apparently dragons and magic make the wildfire that much more potent. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't read, so I don't know for sure. Any number of possibilities there. But yeah, I'd I'd forgotten Wildfire does not come up as far as I can tell in book one at all. It's always amazing to realize how many elements we kind of take for granted in this series weren't even present in book one or even book two. Like the Blackfires don't show up in book two. They only get mentioned by, I think Stannis is the first one to bring up Damon Blackfire Mm -hmm. in A Storm of Swords. So it's, it's, it's fun to watch George start integrating not just these side elements, but important, like Wildfire matters. Like when you get to the Battle of Blackwater, and again, when we're going to see whatever version of, of Cersei shenanigans that we saw in season six in the book. So I think that about wraps us up for foreshadowing groundwork, moving on to our, our discussion portion. And um, I get, you know, when we talk about Tyrion's uh, chapters being different from Ned's and that they're more kind of outward and politically focused, part of that is just the dialogue scenes. There's just lots of long, dense, snappy dialogue scenes in Tyrion's chapters. And this might be a controversial statement, but I actually think seasons two through four of Game of Thrones do a better job on the whole with Tyrion's dialogue than A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. Heresy, I know. I think that Peter Dinklage, especially in this casting choice, was good on Martin's part and that Tyrion is a bit better in seasons two to four. And it's interesting when you're talking about like why 
this came about, I think like Dinklage was actually the first choice to play Tyrion and the first pre- person that was officially cast for Game of Thrones himself. And this came from a 2014 interview with Peter Dinklage where from the New York Times where it says, from the beginning, Dinklage was the first choice for the role of Tyrion, according to Benioff and the show's co-creator Dan Weiss, who observes that Dinklage's, quote, core of humanity covered in by a shell of sardonic dry wit is pretty well in keeping with the character from the books. And George himself said in 2009, and playing Tyrion Lannister will be Peter Dinklage, who was almost everyone's dream casting for the role. He certainly was mine. So so that's a little background as to Peter Dinklage's casting as Tyrion Lannister. But, but Emmett, I'm curious. You, you said that Tyrion in seasons two to four is better than Clash and A Storm of Swords. Obviously, Tyrion has some great, amazing, crackling dialogue in the books, too. I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but I think the show for a few seasons was just doing a, a tighter and more focused job of it than, than George was. Like, Varus's riddle is a great example. In the show, it's a single scene. You get the, the riddle and Varus's explanation of it. One great scene. And here he spreads out the question and the answer over two scenes in two different chapters. It's still fine, but I think it's less punchy and less effective. Or just like line choices, like when you get to Jano's slint and the, his firing in Tyrion's next chapter. And when he brings up his honor, Tyrion in the book says, oh, what honor is that? Which is a fine line, but it's not as good as Peter Dinklage going on. Not questioning your honor, Lord Janos. Perfect pause. I'm denying its existence. <laughs> That's just great. And Dinklage nails it. It's, it's just better. Or like the, the classic uh, one, two, three scene that everyone loves where he's manipulating the various council members by feeding them information, seeing which of them go to Cersei. It's so tight in the in the show because it's they got the the magic of editing at work and they just cut you know from scene to scene in the same room with the three of them and it's like ah perfect execution you get exactly what's going on even the details of it like the show changes Tyrion's fake offer to Varys to offering Marcella to the Greyjoys that's what he says he's going to do in the show and that makes more sense actually than what he tells Varys in the books which is that he's going to send Tommen to Dorne to what like be betrothed to Ariane? it's never mentioned right. what exactly Tyrion is pretending he's going to do with Tommen and it should be something clever because he's trying to fool Varys it makes more sense that Varys would as he does in the show kind of see through Tyrion entirely and say you're not actually sending Marcella and Varys is like actually yeah that's that's true I'm not doing this <laughs> it's just it's more consistent and I think it's it's stronger writing or you have um something I'd completely forgotten about because it's so memorable in the show when you have the scene where Tywin informs Tyrion he's going to marry Sansa and, like, Cersei is just, like, dripping with anticipation. And then Tyrion is, like, shocked and horrified. Like, Joffrey made this girl's life a living hell since he chopped off her father's head. Now she's, he, she's free of him and you give her to me? That's cruel, even for you. And in the books, he, like, doesn't even react. He's just like, oh, you're going to marry me in the same thing. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. It's just, <laughs> it, it's just not, there's just nothing there. And you, you don't get that reversal with Cersei where sin, then she gets brought low by Tyrion, Tywin turning the hammer on her and saying, you got to marry. It's just the dynamic isn't there. My, I think my, my favorite example is um, from Tyrion's trial where you have that amazing delivery from Dinklage when he says, I, I wish I was the monster you think I am. So great. And in the books, it's, you make me sorry that I am not not the monster you would have me be, but there it is. That's just, it's just clunkier. It's just mm-hmm. too too many words to get this idea across. And I think for me, that's one of, one of the highlights of, of Game of Thrones as an adaptation is those those early se- seasons with Tyrion and how snappy those dialogue scenes are. That I mean, for me, that's some of the stuff in the show I, I rewatch most often. I, yeah, I, I think you're right about that. I think I find Tyrion's, season two material particularly strong i think mm-hmm. the, the trial thinking like the way you said it too is really good too it's really good voice acting on your part i think is uh the way that Tyrion does it i wish i was the monster you think i am like it's really visceral the way he does it and it was like all set up really well right to be this 
the Tyrion that we come to find in a Dance of Dragons, who's um really kind of broken and torn up about things that he left Westeros on. So the, you asked why like things ended up turning out the way they did, and I think part of the reason in the show why Tyrion starts to decline as a character starting in season five is something that David Benioff said, and he did say this in the context of Tyrion and Daenerys meeting in season five, where he says, creatively it made sense for us because we wanted it to happen. <laughs> there, that is, Danny and Tyrion, are two of the best characters of the show. To have them come so close together this season, then have them not meet felt incredibly frustrating. Also, we're on a relatively fast pace. We don't want to do a 10-year adaptation of the books. We don't want to do it a 9-year adaptation of the books. We're not going to spend four seasons in Marine. It's just time for these two to get together. It's hard to come up with a more eloquent explanation, but that just felt right. Varys puts Tyrion's mission out there in the season premiere, and the mission ends in Marine. So that was the rationale to speed Tyrion's journey to Daenerys in the show. And, you know, it's understandable in one sense. You know, the show knew that they were working to a seven or eight seasons max at a time when Benioff said this. Turns out it was eight seasons. But at the same time, there were real losses in hustling the narrative to the point where Danny and Tyrion intersect. And we start to see some of those losses when we compare what we saw in seasons five to eight with what George ended up doing with Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons and his early Winds of Winter sample chapters. You know, the they, in my opinion, I think we, we talked about this in our one of our Patreon episodes about Whitewash, the Whitewashed episode about how seemingly they fell in love with Peter Dinklage's performances and how amazing he was at, at doing dialogue and loved the snarky, funny side of Tyrion. But there was another dark side of Tyrion that also wasn't featured in the show and there's more than just simply the dark side that wasn't featured in the show yeah I think obviously we've talked plenty of times about the change in Tyrion's adaptation but I think it's specifically important to talk about it in terms of dialogue I think that's really where you see it maybe more than ever that those those great crackling scenes start to disappear when he leaves Westeros in season five and it just nosedives for me with like the drink and nose things improv sessions in season six because, yeah, I mean, I get why you don't want to spend four seasons in Marine, but ultimately it's not about how long you spend in a place, it's what you do with it. And I don't, I, I think they had missed opportunities with Tyrion there. In A Dance with Dragons, George did something that I think is brilliant. And he dismantled the appeal of Tyrion's crackling dialogue by having him use it as just a blunt instrument. Like, it's, it's not witty anymore, it's just cruel. It's mm. a weapon against the world that has rejected him. And for a variety of reasons, as we've covered before, the show was never going to go there with Tyrion. And so when it came to those dialogue scenes... All they could do is fall back on a pale imitation of the earlier seasons. It's not just that they weren't working from the book anymore. It's that it just felt like a regression in terms of tone. So I think you could argue that they got the construction of Tyrion's character early on even better than George did. That in some ways they improved. But what they neglected was the deconstruction. The, the, hmm. the, the heel turn where George pulls back the curtain and says, hey, this is how Tyrion's actually going to use those things you found enjoyable about him. And so I think that's part of what held Dinklage's Tyrion back is that the the audience never got to see him use those same that same skill set for darker purposes because you know we talk about Tyrion as a big uh, break for him going into dance and that's true but the, as we've been saying in this chapter and previous chapters with Tyrion in book 1 the seeds are there all along for mm -hmm. this darker turn for Tyrion it's that the mix of the change and the continuity that makes that great. And that's a hard balance to strike. For me, that's what the, the book ends, books end up doing better than the show in regards to Tyrion's character. I agree. I think when we're looking at what Tyrion ends up in seasons five and beyond, I think you're absolutely right to focus on that they got the construction really well, better than George. But then the deconstruction, George just you know knocked it out of the park and they didn't do it. They kept Tyrion essentially at the same construction level throughout. I think that's something that will forever 
kind of haunt the show, I think, ultimately. I think we saw a lot of consequences to the fact that they did not show Tyrion becoming dark and just using his wits and his dialogue for like bitter, angry ways and, and ways of and, and destructive ways. I think, you know, when you look at A Dance of Dragons, there's a lot of funny moments in Tyrion's dialogue in A Dance of Dragons, a lot of funny things that he does, but they're like kind of the same. They're kind of like cruelly funny, I think is the best way to put it. They're not mm-hmm. like simply like simply like a uh, constructive so to speak so i do think that they're the fact that the, we have spent so many years with Tyrion, both in the show and now in the books are spending even longer with him waiting for him to come around i am going to be very curious to see how the deconstruction continues and you know as we talked about in previous episodes patreon otherwise i am curious to see whether there will be a point in Tyrion's storyline where he not redeems himself, but he realizes the path he's gone on has been not for good, and then he ends up redeeming himself in some way or bringing himself back up to speed. Perhaps becoming Hand of the King to redeem himself for all of Westeros for all of all time. Who knows? But I think that would be a good way that that George could do it. I think we saw some version of the show having Tyrion be the Hand of the King at the end of the series, but without having the necessary build-up and background to make it really compelling as a narrative endpoint. I think regardless of whether or not Tyrion is redeemed at the end, because that's really a subjective thing, as we see with the endless fights about Jaime in that regard, and more that I want his endgame to be connected to his actions. And my problem with Tyrion at the end of season eight was it was just too many domino falls away from anything he'd done. You know, it was just about Danny, and Tyrion felt so ancillary to that. And I think what I think in the books, as we've said before, he's going to be more directly connected to what happens in King's Landing. And I think there's going to be a real reckoning for that that will that will integrate the whole of Tyrion's character and establish that, yeah, the man in the Game of Thrones is the man in the Clash of Kings is the man in A Dance with Dragons. That's that's one character. Absolutely. So I think that about wraps us up for A Clash of Kings Tyrion 1. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Pondbead, anywhere and everywhere you find your podcasts. Check us out at uh, Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOIAF, especially as we get into Fever Dream going forward. Follow us on Twitter at notacast ASOIAF or shoot us an email at notacast ASOIAF at gmail.com. You can follow me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can follow me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire.wordpress.com. So join us next week as we head north to Winterfell where Bran Stark is trying really hard really hard to be a good prince but he can't ignore the wolf howl on his head telling him that he's something else entirely in a clash of kings brand one heck yes i was saying the last time we did a brand episode at the end of a game of thrones his arc in a clash of kings even if it's not like as exciting or as propulsive as like Tyrion's chapters it's just perfect narrative architecture just craftsmanship like brand has this perfect arc the struggle of identities in his head so well established in this first chapter and then you get to the end of the book and you find him reconciling the two and moving on and it's just it's just great there's so many great themes and, and minor characters to establish I, I just really love Bran's class chapters and I think they're they're one of the more underrated parts of the series on the whole so we'd be making that case in more next week <laughs>